Pastor Chris, what does faith mean? So asked Mary, a sweet elderly woman who lay at the door of death while she grasped for every breath of air her oxygen machine would supply. Some 15 years ago, Mary had graciously opened up her home for a Bible study in the neighborhood. That's where we did many of our evangelistic efforts through work projects, dinners, Bible studies. But now, when she asked the question, she was lying in the hospital concerned about her eternal destiny. She asked again, is faith something I do? Now, in that moment, I, I knew that she's at the doors of death. And this is about her soul. And she was concerned about her soul. And I'm praying, God give wisdom. I looked around the room for analogies and I saw the breathing machine and her bed as she's weakly lying in her bed. And I said, Mary, faith is resting in Christ. It's to lay back upon the support of God's promises for you in Jesus. I mean, look, you can't breathe, right? Yes, Pastor Chris. Your lungs aren't working. You can't take in the oxygen in this, in this room. You need this breathing machine, and it's supplying the air, and you're just receiving it. And the bed, you, you don't have strength. Your body does not have the strength to support itself. And so you are laying your full weight upon the strength of the bed. And I said, now, if you said, well, look at me, I'm going to go over here and try to hold up my own strength, my own, my own weight, hold yourself up. And I went over to be a little bit funny and she's watching me and kind of doing a little stand with my arms and legs on the floor. And I said, I can only do this for so long. I'm going to be tired. This is trusting my own strength. You are lying with your full support in the bed and you're receiving the supply of the oxygen. This is what God has promised for us in Christ. Faith is empty. Faith is beggarly. Faith acknowledges that I'm sin-diseased and receives with an open hand God's promise that he will provide the obedience of Jesus Christ to my account. So he looks at me perfect. He will pay for our sin. We trust in him. He will promise. He promises in Christ a resurrection body. So there's hope when you walk from this life to the next, just as sure as Christ has received a glorified body and was seen by 500 witnesses and ascended to heaven, just as sure as a glorified body is waiting for you. And his ascension, he's promised to prepare homes for us and to give us a family, eternal family. This is the hope for those who trust in Christ. And so she, she said, so faith is pl- placed in Jesus. Faith is placed in Jesus. Yep. Herman Witsius, an old Dutch reformer, wrote that the reformers described the sinner saint. That's what Luther used the term sinner saint. That is, we're sinners, but we have a righteous legal standing with God because of Christ's righteousness. So the sinner saint is a beggar on the street whose helpless and empty hand is filled with the riches of his benefactor and savior. Witsius said one would never think to credit the riches received by the beggar to his state of poverty as if his state of impoverishment demanded the mercy and grace of the benefactor. No, for in the message of the gospel, Christ the benefactor raised the hand of the beggar to receive the riches of his mercy. It comes by grace to free supply. Well, as we look at Colossians is where I would like to take us this morning. Colossians 1, I'd like to look at the nature 
of living faith, the faith that rests in Christ, that receives Christ. And I want to make the contention that not only are we saved by faith in resting in Christ to receive his righteousness and payment for our sins, but also that we actually grow through faith in Christ. And we're going to see that in verses 8 through 10, where we're filled with the knowledge of his will in Christ, and it produces growth. It affects our walk. And then we're strengthened through the promises of redemption. So redemption isn't just the past reality, which it is. It's fixed. It's done in Christ. We're redeemed, past reality. But that, that promise of redemption is what encourages and strengthens our hearts for Christian living. Now, before we look at, well, let me, let me take you to verse four, just so you can see this faith in Christ. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And let me, before we break into this, look at the source of this faith, the provision of this faith. And he anchors it all in verse five and six, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Moving on, which has come to you. See the personification of this gospel. It's like a person that has actually visited you and connecting that the data of scripture, the Holy Spirit comes. He works through the ministry of the gospel to grant faith in Christ. So it, it comes to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So the gospel, the good news, brings God's word of truth. And with it, the grace of God, the provision, the sovereign provision of God in truth. And faith receives that. Faith is actually birthed from this word of truth. We we know that because Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us that as God said, let there be light and there was light. So he speaks light and life to the darkened dead soul through his word. And he brings the life of Christ. So faith comes from the word of truth, the gospel. And that's why there's so much productivity and fruitfulness. Now, before we look at the character of this faith, I want to set up the context a little bit and look at attacks on living faith in Christ. What is opposed to living faith in Christ? And for that, I'd like to take you to Colossians 2.18. Colossians 2.18. Now, remember, he is writing to professing believers. Because there's a warning that it's easy, as Galatians 3.1 says, He says, who's bewitched you? If you've begun by the Spirit, why do you think you can be perfected by the flesh, by fleshly things? Why do you think you can grow spiritually by fleshly motives and fleshly resources? So, likewise, in Colossians 2.18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Okay, this is the method of the environment's the problem. People outside of me are the problem. I'm not the problem. If I can separate myself, then I can solve the problem. Separation. And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed without reason by a sensuous mind. Worship of angels, we call this mysticism. And notice it's anchored in the sensuous mind. I'm creating this philosophy, this worldview, this religion. It comes from myself. So we'd argue that mysticism is another approach. And while we're looking at sensuous mind... He'll talk about sensuality in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He'll talk about earthly things like sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, chapter 3, verse 5. We can tuck that under the term licentiousness. That is, I define, my passions define reality. I live for my passions. Scripture will call that beastly and invite us to look at the animals and how they 
I'm thinking of my dog, uh, Roxy, how she loves food. And if I give her a steak, which, you know, when I'm full, I think, well, here's a little steak. It's just gobbled and gone. Just passions, gone. I'm like, just enjoy it. Okay. Then I break it up in little pieces. Here you go. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And I feel better. And she don't care. <laughs> it's just gone. <laughs> but she's fixed on that. Well, it's the idea of the sensuous mind. It's just driven by passions. Philippians 3 talks about moved by the, the, the belly, the stomach. But then we move on and look at the contrast in 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, that would be the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, we're going to come to this, this is huge. Why is if you were still alive in the world, so alive in the world from the principles of the world, the power of the world, do you submit to regulations, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Referring to things that all perish, even as they're used. Why would we think that that's going to empower us and provide infinite resources when even in using them or not using them, they actually perish? Think of every program we've ever used or every, I think of McDonald's toys, right? The kids just love that and it's just like broken before you walk out of McDonald's. But they loved it. It's just, that's a testament of these things we use in this world to try to save ourselves. And, And he says they're according to human precepts and teachings, so... It's not rooted in heaven. It's not God's answer. It's the human answer. 23, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They look good, like McDonald toys. Sorry to diss McDonald toys. They have their purpose. <laughs> All things are for the glory of God. We can use them. It's sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer, right? So we'll try to sanctify that. But in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So all this is rooted in this little phrase in verse 20, elemental spirits of the world. Now, I'll throw a Greek word at you, stoichia, uh, elemental building blocks of the world, the elemental, elemental building blocks uh, or foundations or principles, or as this says, the spirits. It's, it's the basic principles of life. And, and you notice here, it's don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Don't do these things. When you cross it with Galatians, Paul uses it, to talk about feasts and festivals that people use to try to establish the relationship with God that are, he says, are shadows of the substance which belongs to Christ. But he talks about these elemental principles again. And in Second Peter, Peter describes the universe as elemental building blocks and says they're going to be burned up, the stoichia, the elemental principles with fervent heat. The elemental building blocks of this universe are going to melt away. So we're, t- we're putting together the building blocks of this world, the foundation of the universe, order. And what we conclude from these three passages is this concept of, if you could summarize the building blocks of the universe in the, sta- the phrase, works of the law. Works of the law. It works something like this, and you've heard it many times here, do to live or obey to be blessed. Don't die or disobey cursed. Now, when you think about it, that is the fundamental principle of justice. It assumes that there is an eternal law. That's the measure of that. And Galatians calls it the reaping and sowing effect, right? I mean, you, you sow good seeds and you reap flowers. You sow, yeah, we've done that before. Try to fertilize the soil, grab soil from somebody and you find it's just infested with termites or, or, or thorns and thistles and weeds. And you're like, oops, I sowed that accidentally. Not good. Now we got a lot of work to do. It's the basic reaping and sowing effect. It's the basic order of life. And by nature, it's good. 
That's right. It's what the world turns. We have laws of nature that we can describe. And there's a, a work of the law written on our hearts that we use in Romans 2 to judge others and, and condemn even ourselves when we don't fulfill the work of the law. But what is, what is dangerous here is it's been harnessed, harnessed, harnessed to try to solve the sin problem. You see, pre-fall, the elemental building blocks of the universe, the work of the law, Adam, obey me, life, disobey me, curse, simple, you, you're separated from me, judgment, condemnation, you don't have life, darkness, you have me, you have life, you have everything you need. Basic building blocks, good thing. Post-fall, there's a problem. If we try to use that principle when I've already violated God's law, come underneath his curse and facing death and ultimate judgment before God's throne one day, which our world is telling us in all its glorious pictures that there's a judgment day coming, right? Your own heart judges yourself and judges others. For sports to exist, we got to have refs. For order in society, we need, we call them refs. It, it's, it's telling us something, there's a judgment to come. There's a law, there's order. But you see, if you harness that elemental principle, works of the law, and try to bring it over into a post-fall condition, Paul says what? In the end of verse 23, one, it's self-made religion, and it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says it's destined to perish, verse 22, and it's according to human precepts and teachings. So the philosophies, the worldview, the religions craft this do to live, obey, to be blessed, disobey, to curse, don't die, and try to formulate it into a religion to save us, to rescue us. And he says, one, it doesn't deal with the passions of the flesh, nor does it deal with reconciliation with God and acceptance with God. But here's the key. The Colossians were in danger of falling back into that pattern, Galatians 3, 1, to be bewitched. And it's so easy for us because these are the building blocks of the universe. We want order. It often happens when ministering to parents with their children or uh, employers with employees. And we want to use law, consequences, and rewards with our children or those that we care for. And that's good. It's the order of the universe. But we forget that we couldn't even meet God's ultimate demands and God had to grace us by fulfilling it all in Christ. And so that should produce an attitude of grace and kindness and love and ministry to others as God did for me in Christ. We forget that and then we sit here and use that on our children or or relationships that fail us instead of interrupting it with grace. That doesn't mean we deny the law. I love the Heidelberg. It's guilt. The law brings guilt. It shows the standard and shows our failure. But then God's word provides in the gospel grace to meet that need. And then we live our lives out of gratitude, which you're going to see in this text. Thankfulness and joy and thanksgiving. It's not driven by the power of the law. It's driven by the power of Christ fulfilling the law, that grace. But these are the tactics. They're the elemental principles of the world. They can be summed up as legalism, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Asceticism, separate from outside influences. Mysticism, concocted by our own passions and the sensuous mind, own licentious desires. Bernard, an old church pastor, compares such a person to a man being hungry, gapes continually for the wind, and while he may be puffed, 
He cannot be filled and satisfied. And since I'm on the picture of my dog, they stick their dogs out the window and, you know, they're just like, ah, trying to gain the wind. It's just not going to do nothing. <laughs> it's gaping after the wind. And the same thing when we try to, to, to find ultimate acceptance and solve our sin problem by using perishing fleshly things, taking the law and trying to repackage it with human solutions has no power. It's destined to fail. Now, it may have a short-term power. I mean, the law is good. It does reveal sin. It does provide motivations of rewards. But in the end, it does not have the power of God. That's rooted in Christ. Now, why is Christ such a fitting Savior to be trusted in? Why is he the object? So that for that, we go back to Colossians 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. He says, and I'm going to start with grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So here's the grace it's given. It's almost as if he's, he's saying, here's the grace and it's going to give through, I'm going to give you the word of truth right now in Colossians. So grace is coming to you. It's empowered by, the word of God's empowered by the Holy Spirit to convict. It's a aroma of death to some, a aroma of life to others. Some won't receive this and be graced. Some will be hardened and reject it. And for those who receive it, it's an aroma of life. So grace comes to you. And when Colossians 4 closes, it says, grace be with you. It's as if the word of God, we've had it. It's, it's been seated in our souls and our hearts. And we've been impressed with Christ. And grace has been left with us. And it comes through Christ. Look at verse 3. We always thank God. What is grace? The provision of God accomplished produces thankful people. It's like flowers that receive the sun and the rain in good soil. And they open up and they blossom. And they, we enjoy their beauty. So believers who've been graced with God and rest in the soil of Christ and are grounded on the foundation of Christ, they blossom in thankfulness and praise and joyous thanksgiving. We thank God, he says, verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you since, verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I love to just kind of peel this thing. Uh, notice the three titles in verse 3, Lord Jesus Christ, and then repeats Christ Jesus in verse 4. And I do, I'd ask the question, who is the object of my faith? Why is he so valuable? Why is he the ground and soil of, of faith, this resting, this receiving? Because of who he is. Lord underlines his deity. It's used throughout the epistles when the Old Testament, like Isaiah 8, will describe Yahweh as the cornerstone that will crush those who reject him, but also bring salvation. So for those who reject him, it's going to crush in an ultimate judgment one day because Christ is the judge, John 5. At the same time, those whose pride today has been crushed by the cornerstone and they receive faith, uh, they have Christ as their cornerstone and foundation. Serves a dual, dual purpose. I say Isaiah 8 because First Peter 1 and 2 and Paul will, will take that Yahweh title and bring it all across and use the term Lord to refer to Jesus. He's Yahweh, the cornerstone. So Kyrios is used often in Scripture when it's applied to Jesus, underlined his deity. He's Yahweh, the self-existent one. This is why he's a fitting foundation for our faith in contrast to these human precepts and teachings. But he's also Jesus. Now, I know that's a term that we've just run across all the time. And maybe I can enrich you by um, reminding you of Joshua or Yeshua. Right? Joshua, a picture of a Savior who redeems or brings people into the promised land and um, 
Savior figure. Yeshua applied to Jesus. It comes across as Jesus in the Greek. He's the Savior. Matthew 1 says, uh, you will name his, his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So here we have the God-man. How does God save us? In Christ, fully God, Lord, becomes our Savior through his humanity, his incarnation, his perfect obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's a great Savior. It's God providing his salvation for us in the person of Christ. But then Christ underlines his messiahship, his kingship. No, no, no doubt he's, he's king as the promised Messiah. So in his ascension, he's seated at the Father's right hand in power and glory. But Hebrews reminds us that he also rules in the midst of his enemies. How do you rule in the midst of your enemies? It doesn't, that doesn't seem very rational. But the way the gospel explains it is in the midst of a, a sinful world that's in rebellion against God, Christ, by his spirit, works through the proclamation of the word of truth, the proclamation of the kingship and saviorship and deity of Jesus Christ. He rescues sinners. So in the midst of a rebellious world, he saves sinners. He rules, as, as Colossians reminds us, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. He rules over our hearts, even in the midst of his enemies. And one day, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he will submit all authority to him in a very visible way. So Christ is the only one fitting to receive our faith. We rest in him. And faith is a gift that comes from the word of truth. As we sum up these titles, I'm reminded of this term, all spiritual wisdom in Colossians 1.9, this idea of all. Colossians 1.11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Colossians 1.12, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Uh, Colossians 1.28, uh, with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What a statement to make about Jesus. All wisdom, all understanding, all the riches, all the fullness of God, Colossians 1.19, was pleased to dwell in him. He is before all things, Colossians 1.17. mean, what a statement to make, because what he's saying is, this is who Christ is, Therefore, all sufficiency is found in him because of who he is. So faith is grounded at rest in Christ in his person. He's God, he's the Savior, and he's the King. We take all of him by faith, don't we? We can't piecemeal him up and say, well, I like this particular office versus this office, or I like this aspect of you, Christ, I want your deity, you so that you're far off, but I don't want your saviorship, your humanity, because that admits that I'm a sinner and that you had to come down to save me and I couldn't do it myself. We can't piecemeal Christ up. We take him for all that he is and we take his work for all that God has provided. So the, the, and there's another aspect to the foundation of this faith, Christ's work. Now, it's, it's interesting that it's summed up in this finality of the work of Jesus Christ, his ascension. You know, we often think of Christ's work 
in a fourfold way. We think of his life of obedience to the law. He learned obedience to what he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. We talk about his passion, right, at the cross. He uh, received the wrath of God for us. He propitiated, satisfied God's wrath. We think of his resurrection, his burial and his resurrection, that he was buried and that he was raised and that he ascended. But Paul is using the last final term as a summation of the entirety of Christ's work, the consummation of it. He says in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So it's only because of the hope laid up for in heaven, for us in heaven, that is his ascension, his, that he's been accepted uh, by God on our behalf. He's the vindicated, the righteous one. His work on the cross truly uh, uh, took the, the guilt and sin that we deserve. This ascension uh, secures all of this for us. This is what makes faith living, that because he's the ascended Lord, he's poured out the Holy Spirit upon us to grant faith, and all the benefits of his cross work are made ours through faith because of his ascension. So it's fitting that Paul emphasizes the whole good news of the gospel under laid up for us in heaven. They say you've read a lot into hope there. Well, I read a lot into hope because of what he says in Colossians 1.23. He calls the hope the hope of the gospel, which encompasses the work of Christ for sinners. In Colossians 1.27, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the hope of glory. Ascension work. And it's Christ who's the hope of glory. So taking the context, when we were to read hope, the gospel, hope, Christ, he and his benefits are stored up, secured for us in heaven. And that drove Peter to say, it's reserved. It's without blame or blemish. It's secured. You can't take that away or diminish it or increase it because it's full and complete in Christ. I want you to look at the hope of this ascension by looking at chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Chapter 2, 11 through 15. Now he's going to focus, he'll talk about the ascension, we're, we're made alive together with him, but he's going to unpack the burial, the death of Christ and his resurrection and our union with him in this. This, this is this is phenomenal and so impactful to where we are in society today. Verse 11, Colossians 2. In him, so I just wanted you to see in him. And then move to 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, Romans 6 uses uh, united with him in baptism as synonyms. So I would underline this is what we often call spiritual baptism or the the Spirit's work of baptism and uniting us with Jesus Christ. It's that saving work. Now, water baptism is going to reflect that in a, in a symbol, in an ordinance given to the church. But we've been, notice, buried with him in baptism, in union, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. This is where he metaphorically flexed his muscles this is the powerful working of God in our union with his burial, which implies his death, and his resurrection, who raised him from the dead. And you, so look at our state. This is why all those elementary principles of the world, the building blocks of the do this to live and don't to die don't work. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
So we were dead in trespasses. We need to be, have, be forgiven our trespasses, which trespass implies breaking God's law, transgressing God's law. How does he do it? By just winking at it, forgiving it, putting it behind his back, sweeping it under the rug? No, verse 14. By canceling, oh, doesn't that have some verbiage going on, some pictures for us all today. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. God triumphs over them in Christ. This is where his powerful work is displayed. Explain this to me. Maybe you're saying or asking. Verse 13, we were dead. We have an issue with God. We need forgiven. How in the world does he solve this? He takes the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, the demands of the law, perfect, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, holy, completely, for the glory of God. And it's multifaceted aspects of life and all our walk and all our daily duties to give him honor and praise as he deserves. We have a huge record of debt. And no finite individual could ever take that record of debt. This requires the Lord Jesus Christ. This requires infinite God, as I believe it was Anselm that said, that his divine, I'm going to be redundant, divine deity, I should say his eternal deity, his infinite deity, standing behind even the very human nature of Christ, united in one person. So in other words, Christ's deity, his eternal God, gives a support to what Christ is going to do through his human nature. So that the value of his work and his obedience is turned up to an infinite worth. Because you ask how in a couple hours can Jesus absorb eternal wrath that I deserve? I mean, I would have to pay eternal punishment in hell because I've offended an eternal God. And so I therefore deserve an eternal punishment. And in fact, no one's going to be in hell saying, man, if I just have a second chance, the fact that we, as C.S. Lewis said, in hell is because we hate God and would rather be here than to, to worship God and give him honor and praise. That's the whole sin problem anyway. So sin never lets up. We keep sinning even under judgment. So only Christ can offer the value that's needed to cancel the record of debt. And how does he do it? God says, through Paul, by the Spirit, verse 14, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Think of our culture. If I could give you, I love to call it the fourfold aspect of the gospel. God has said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. He's fulfilled all righteousness. Christ has done to live. He has fulfilled the elementary principles of the world, the building blocks of the universe, by obeying God's law. He has submitted to God's order for the universe in his life, in his thoughts, perfect obedience. We in our sin say, I can do that. I'm going to do to live. I've got my list. I've got my expectations. Someone else has their expectations for me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to run the treadmill of do to live, obey to be blessed. And God says when we've offended his law, there's penalty to be paid. It's eternal punishment because the value of that law is the weight of God's infinite, glorious, righteous character. And so Christ, Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes, we're healed. He takes the payment with providing this eternal value to his satisfactory work at the cross. But we say, I failed, or you failed, or you tell me I failed. I need to pay penance. I've done enough counseling with those who 
we would call cutters. It's a more sophisticated term for that, but it's often hidden. And this particular individual said they felt guilt, they felt shame, uh, pain, and it was to release the pain and the guilt and the victimization of being abused. Paul says that doesn't have the power over the flesh. It's destined to fail because it's perishing. You've got to keep doing it and doing it. And it's a temporary relief. God says in Isaiah 53, huh, the principle's right, the elementary principle, obey to be blessed, disobey to be cursed. And you've got the curse concept in your cutting, but there's no power there. And that's not what God has provided. He's provided his son so that our guilt can be relieved. He pays the punishment. It's by his stripes we're healed. And God has said, through the obedience of Christ and through the death of Christ, by his stripes we're healed. He's been raised. He's been vindicated as the righteous Savior on our behalf. But we say, I want the better life. I want the resurrected life. I'm going to do to meet my expectations. I'm going to punish you or separate from you. Or I'm going to be punished or canceled out in order to find the better life. And if I can do it right and get through, I can have the resurrected life. And the fourth aspect is the ascension of Christ. He's king. He's sovereign. He's, a, he's held, holds on to the benefits of salvation that he's provided in his obedience, his death, his resurrection life. And he bestows on that as king over our hearts, ruling, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts by his spirit, through his word, through faith in Christ. But we say, when I could do it, and I pay enough penance, I cancel Myself out, others out, I can come around. I can have the better life, and I want to be king. I want my citizens of my kingship. I want to be ruler. I want to rule myself. I want to rule my body. I want to be in charge. But death sits there. The military principles of the world drive against us, and we find hopelessness. As Bernard said, we gape after the wind, and we find nothing. Temporary reliefs? Yeah, sure. The elementary principles of the world... They would stabilize our world around us. The problem is the curse of sin. We live in a sin-cursed, dying world and sin-cursed, dying bodies. Well, that takes us to verse 15. I don't want to underline. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is just fabulous. So the only power, rulers and authorities, so the, the elites of our world, and you could put in here, obviously, Satan and demonic authorities. The only power, the only arming they have is the law. It reminds you of your failures. It reminds you you need to pay penance. It reminds you you need to be canceled out, right? That's, that's the power. But Christ disarms it. He takes the sword away from the rulers and authorities. Why? Because he takes the law and fulfills it, takes its punishment, rises again from the dead, the better life, an eternal life, and is ascended king. He disarms and then he flips the script. He puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What do you mean? Put to open shame. They have power now manipulating the law that's written on our hearts. And we feel the guilt and the shame and the failures. We may be driven to cut. We may be driven to asceticism to separate. We may be driven to cancel out. But in the end, it's hopeless and it goes to the grave and we know it. And God is going to and has shamed them by showing that it's only through Christ and he's the only one that has actually obtained the resurrection, ascended life 
500 witnesses saw him. Angels were there to testify of it. The word of God is it's moved. As Colossians 1, 6-8 says, the word of God is moved and increased throughout the world. We have the testament of it in his word as it's moved to us today. You can watch the progress of scripture as it's translated. Moving to Egypt, moving to Syria and Armenia and to the Georgian, uh, Caspian Seas, into the Anglo-Saxon world. You can watch the progress of the gospel as it's moved and to see the fruitfulness of that gospel and the relief of that to our souls. And in its promise is the promise that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities, flipped the script, put them to shame. And what does he say? Triumphed over them in him. This is our triumph. And we think about it, this is the only power that the world has and our own flesh has to remind us of our failure and our sin. One Our three great threats is to take away meaning, to take away our purpose, to take away our esteem, to take away our hope, to take away our life, the threat of life. But in Christ, he's paid for our sins, our guilt. There's no power. You can't manipulate me with that. He's taken away the shame and provided the promise of his righteousness. He's promised this dying body, a glorified body. He's provided and promised an eternal home. Man, that just motivated martyrs. You can see them in the Fox's Book of Martyrs as they're tortured, tongues ripped out, limbs removed, tortured to deny Christ. As some went to the fire to be burned, why couldn't they be threatened? Why couldn't they be manipulated? Why didn't the rulers and authorities have the weapons to shame them because they've already triumphed in Christ. This is the power of the gospel, the power of resting in Christ as our Lord, Savior, and King. And with that, we're going to look at verses 9 through 10. Look at the filling that happens. So we just, we just anchored it right there in this glorious gospel, and we're just going to let it flow out, and it's going to move pretty quickly, like flowing river. So 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So faith that rests in Christ is filled with the knowledge of his will. What is his will? He's just given it to us. He said the mystery is in Christ, in whom are hidden, chapter 2, verse 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Christ. And so we begin to grow in the knowledge of his will for us in Christ. And this is called all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's what life is all about. It's what meaning's all about for the Christian. So this growing in the knowledge of these gospel truths affects our walk. Verse 10. Now, no, he's not sliding back into the asceticism. He doesn't say, well, now you can affect growth by separating from people that are hurting you. Or do this, don't do this. Or mysticism or passions. Well, what does he say? It flows out of this being filled with the truths of who Christ is and it affects our walk. So we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Our life begins to reflect the character of Christ. Think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That resting in Christ produces rest-filled fruit. Fully pleasing to him. Wow, we're pleasing to him because the debt that was against us has been canceled because of Christ. Bearing fruit in every good work. You mean we can do good things that are pleasing to the Lord? He doesn't say for justification, not to get us in. We're already in. 
There's fruit that he works in our life. These are fruit-bearing works. And what happens is we increase in the knowledge of God. The more we grow in Christ and understand the fullness and riches of God's grace for us in Jesus, we bear fruit. That increases an understanding of the gospel, the knowledge of God. We begin to understand his riches for us. It becomes personal as we're confronted with the armament of the world or fleshly approaches to life or we're being punished or canceled out. We remembered Christ was canceled out for us at the cross. That's a principle of the law, but there's no hope there. I've been filled up in Christ. I've been restored in Christ. I have his righteousness. Credit to my account. Now I'm free to serve even if I'm being used or manipulated with the weapons of the world. It's so hard, isn't it? Because the building blocks of the world are part of the building blocks of our hearts. So we get this work of the law principle. It's the driver to society. It's the driver to the world, but with no hope. No Christ to fulfill it for us, to free us. So that's the filling. So there's faith in Christ, his personal work. This faith in Christ is filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, which is, resides in Christ, according to Colossians 2, uh, 2 and 3. And then lastly, there's a strengthening that happens through the promise of redemption. So faith in Christ, 1 through 8, and that's growing, it's bearing fruit. And 9 through 10, we're filled up with the knowledge of his will, so that affects our walk, actually increases our understanding of God. And the verses 11 through 14, we become strengthened and empowered, not by do this to live principles, but rather understanding the grace of God. Now, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power. Boy, you can only say that if, you're, if Christ is all power. According to his glorious might, ascended work, it's glorious, for all endurance and patience. So it allows us, this strength and power and might allows us to endure and to be patient in it, but not out of a grumbling spirit, but with joy and thanksgiving. Giving thanks to, verse 12, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Adam rebelled against God, there was a threefold consequence. And we can actually take verse 11 through 14 and under, underline this. First, not necessarily in the order, because obviously the first is legal transgression before God, breaking the law of God, but there's a need for ransoming. There's a need for redemption because there are now legal demands and he's fallen short. So he can no longer in his sin fulfill the demand of the law. So there's a legal requirement and that's been broken. Second, if you look at uh, verse 13, there's a, we'll work backwards so it does match. There's a sanctification problem. He's now been removed from the presence of God in the garden, cast outside into the domain of darkness. And third, there's a glorification problem. The end goal of eternal life and glory has been crushed. It's fascinating that the word redemption in verse 14, you can underline ransom payment. And Romans invites us to look back at Pharaoh in Egypt as the people of God were enslaved. But you think about the nature of enslavement. Pharaoh would say, build the city with bricks, but you don't get any straw. He would say, oh, you want to offer sacrifices, but you can't take the lambs. You have no resources. And then labor, I kill your sons. Fascinating, isn't it? 
that the demand of the law now in an enslaved condition still has these high requirements but provides no resources, no way to fulfill them. So Adam himself was removed from the presence of God, lost an eternal inheritance, and is underneath the bondage of sin. And so it is redemption that unrolls all that, it flips it. So in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the legal demand is paid by Christ and therefore we're forgiven. And so verse 13, we're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We're, we're given, we're now transferred to a kingdom, the son's kingdom, the loved one of whom has loved us. And we get a father in this kingdom, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. So we get a, the Son as our Savior. The Son is our elder brother, as the beloved one. Son is our King. And we get a father. We get a family. We get eternal homes. And verse 12, we get an eternal inheritance. It solves the glorified problem, the eternal inheritance problem. The Father who, as verse 12, has qualified you. How? Because of redemption to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thomas Brooks notes in the last things reserved for last that in most inheritances they get piecemealed out. So we only get a part of it. But because all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ and all the benefits of salvation dwell in him, by getting Christ, you get the whole inheritance of God, all of us, through faith in Christ. Now, Calvin, I leave you with his words, his warnings, his exhortation. He said this, he said, and I'll do the best I can paraphrase it. He said that God has provided all the riches of salvation in Jesus Christ to meet your needs. Glorification, eternal inheritance, sanctification, domain of his beloved son, and redemption. But those are in Christ. Romans, or Colossians 1.14 says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You must have Christ to have redemption. You must have Christ to have his domain. You must have Christ to have an eternal inheritance. Outside of Christ, Calvin said, they have no benefit to you and no benefit to me. What do I need to have faith in Christ? The word of truth. One of my sons one day asked me, what must I do to believe? What must I do to be saved? So let's read through Romans uh, 1 through 5 together. It's the word of God that grants life. I want the word of God to show our sin and our need for Christ. It's not in man's power and ability to manipulate some salvation It's in the gift of God. And Lord, we come before you and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all these rich resources. And we're going to enjoy eternity exploring the depths. We don't even, can't even fathom in these fleshly bodies, these mortal bodies, the, the weight and eternal glory of what we have in Christ Jesus. We can only look forward to each day as we grow in the knowledge of your will and see our need for Christ. But we look forward to glory when we're given fitting bodies that are ready to be impressed with the, the undiluted, unmitigated radiance of your glory uh, in Christ. So we commend our hearts to you and to Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.